Amen. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, the text will be up on the screens in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles if you prefer those uh, scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. Uh, I, I prefer a physical Bible. There's just something special about God's Word being in your hands. Um, doesn't mean He can't use, won't use you know, the cell phone app. I just think He does something special with a real Bible. Um, and so if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that one home. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses the Bible for a lot of different things, but mostly to give us himself, to teach us about who he is. And we want you to know God, and, and it would be a disservice to you to let you walk out the door without one if you don't have one, because, well, how else are you going to know him, all right? And so if you don't have one, take that one. I'll call it a win. Um, so we're in our, seri- our Story of God series. Uh, we kicked it back up last week after a summer break, uh, and we are uh, rolling along through this. We've been working on it for some of them around you know, 15-ish weeks now, if you put them all together and count. Uh, and so we are, uh, we are asserting that the entire Bible is about Jesus. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, yeah, the New Testament's definitely about him. Right? He's born in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and he, he, we see his life, death, burial, resurrection, all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, it's about Jesus. No, 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 the entire Bible is about Jesus. Not just the New Testament, not just the, the Old Testament prophecies that are promising his coming. No, the whole Bible. Uh, we think that even like stories about Noah getting drunk naked right after the flood are about Jesus. That's weird. But we think he is. it is. We think that, that, that stories about, about, uh, about Joshua, uh, about Jacob, excuse me, wrestling with uh, God and playing tap out with the angel of the Lord are really about Jesus. And, and Jesus is never explicitly mentioned in those stories. His name is never uttered. But if you read them correctly, he stands above the rest as the star of the show. Right? He, he may not be the guy that they're all talking to back and forth in this little narrative that plays out, but if we read those stories correctly, we walk away with the very, very distinct impression that Jesus was in control and over it at all. all right? And so um, we are answering the question by, uh, by taking a slow walk through the life of the major characters of the Old Testament and asking the question, how does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? How does their story tell us about the much larger and much more beautiful story of God? But here's the deal. That question can feel daunting. It can feel uh, a little too complicated and a little too big for us. And so to make it a little more attainable, uh, we've taken up the practice of breaking it into four smaller questions. And if you've been here a while, you already know what those are, right? How is this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And then finally... How does their story preach the gospel? I I was hoping y'all would tell me, but no. All right. How does their story preach the gospel? All right. So if we answer these four smaller questions well, I think we position ourselves in such a way that we can answer the much larger mountaintop story of God question very, very, very well. So y'all ready to jump into it today? Who's our character? Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz. Why both of them together? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. But it's impossible, impossible to tell their stories correctly without the other one playing a major role in it, all right? And so uh, we need to talk about both of them this morning. To do this right, we have to look at both of them together. So let's round out their profile. The Moabite from Moab, some old Jewish customs 
means plus resolve. You ready to look at question one? Ruth chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, time out. So we need to call a timeout right away and set the stage historically, right? I know we jumped around a little bit timeline-wise the last couple of weeks. We went all the way back and looked at Job, which is early on in the Bible last week. And because of the the extended break over the summer, it can seem a little bit complicated. But when is this playing out? What time period? The days when the judges ruled, right? So who are the judges? As in the book of Judges, right? Those guys. Those people. The entire... This entire book of the Bible is zoomed in during the time period of the Judges. We see one little narrative that zooms its focus in during the same time period that the book of Judges happens. So before we shut things down for the summer, we looked at two guys back to back, uh, Samson and Gideon, or or Gideon and then Samson, right? right? And I'm sure... I'm absolutely positive that those were the best sermons you've ever heard, and they changed your life forever, and you remember every single detail that I talked about. But do me a favor, all right, and just ignore all that for a second and lock down on the one truth above all the other truths that we needed to talk about in those two weeks. Do you remember what it was? That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the phrase that you hear over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges if you read it. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's a phrase you not only see over and over again, it's a a phrase that is the overarching theme of the book of Judges. It's a recurring phrase over a three to four hundred year cycle of God's people falling into idolatry and sin falling into enslavement by the neighboring nations around them that shouldn't be there, having to be rescued out of that enslavement by a a figure that we call a judge, a king-type-slash-general figure. God rescues them out of slavery. The people are rescued, peace is restored for a while, only to fall apart again shortly down the road. Right? Over and over. Over and over again. Not exactly a pleasant time in this grand story of God, right? Not exactly a grand time in the story of God's covenant people. And Ruth's story opens up by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. Happy beginning or sad beginning? (laughs) Sad beginning, right? That's not all it says. Look at the rest of verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They are Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, so uh, we, know, uh, we know that the story is set in the time of the judges, and we also learn here that the story is set in the time of a famine, right? That's fun. But we also learn that the story is set in the town of where? 
Bethlehem. Sleepy, backwater, know-nothing town of Bethlehem. Ain't nobody paying attention to Bethlehem. Now, we have 2,000 years of church history and a bunch of really bad children's Christmas pageants to tell us that what is going to happen in Bethlehem, right? We know that there's something really awesome coming down the pipe. But at this point in revelatory history and redemptive history, ain't nobody paying attention to Bethlehem. Nobody. So we're told that it's in the time of the judges. We're told that it's in Bethlehem. And we're also told, like I said, that there's a famine in the land, right? Which is ironic for a couple of reasons. One, because this promised land that they're currently living in is supposed to come with the tagline, a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Are famines supposed to happen in this place where God provides in this massive, massive way? Is that how the system is supposed to work here? Famines aren't supposed to happen in this promised land. That's, that's not what we were told. That's not what we were promised. But it's ironic on a second level because Bethlehem literally means house of bread. If you're going to find bread anywhere during the days of a famine, Bethlehem ought to be your place. And so hard times have absolutely hit the nation of Israel, haven't they? If even sleepy little Bethlehem has been hit by this, it's a dark day. It's a dark day. Now because we know the overarching story of the book of Judges, we know that that a lot of these problems are the natural consequences of Israel's own idiocy and sinfulness. They keep getting in their own way, and God keeps allowing them to get in their own way, right? But instead of repentance, Elimelech is, well, he moves his family to Moab. Instead of repentance, they instead seek fortune elsewhere. Our boy Elimelech decides instead to pack up his family and move to the neighboring land of Moab. And, and listen, while, while going full refugee status is sometimes a noble thing and sometimes even a celebrated thing, like, like the idea of a, of a man looking for a way to provide for his family, that's, that should be applauded. We can't ignore the fact of what this move communicates about God and his provision, right? Elimelech picks up his family and moves from the place where God says, if you stay with me, I will give you everything you need. And he takes them instead to an incredibly pagan nation to find what they need. What does that communicate about God and his provision? Not good things, right? But the story rolls on. Some time passes. We're not sure how long. But after some time, daddy dies. And his two sons both marry Moabite girls. Giant no-no for God's people. This isn't simply some cultural faux pas. This is blatantly ignoring God's command for them. 
We talked about this a few months back when we talked about Samson, right? God explicitly told his people, forbade his people, because he knew what it would lead to, that they would intermarry with these other cultures and these other religions, and that they would begin the idolatrous practice of these other religions. That's what this is all about, that they would take up these idolatrous practices. He saw it coming, he called, and that's exactly what happens every time we see this story play out. But hey, right, we're, we're a long way from home in a foreign land, and everybody's already doing what's right in their own eyes, so, you know, whatever. But no matter how we got here, Naomi now has these two Moabite daughters-in-law. And, it's, and the writer of Ruth hits the fast-forward button. Ten years pass by. We're not told about anything that happens in those ten years. But ten years pass by, and then we're told that her two sons die as well. Fun little family moment. And as tragic as that is, all on its very own, there's a cultural layer to this that makes it even worse, significantly worse. In the culture that they're living in, the chances of Naomi being able to provide for herself in this foreign land is almost zero. She can't, she doesn't own any land. She can't go get a job or anything. Every means of provision that she had has now gone away. The death of her sons immediately leaves Naomi destitute and without hope. She can't provide for herself, let alone Ruth and, Ruth and Orpha. Let alone these daughters-in-law. What's she going to do? And so she responds to that destitution in the next part. Look at verse 6. Then she, talking about Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law and to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was uh, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night I should, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore remain, uh, refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, and she said, see your, sister-in-law, or see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, I will, or there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So Naomi decides that she needs to return home because, I mean, let's be honest here, her chances at least go up a little bit if she goes back home instead of being a woman in a foreign land. So she decides she's got to go back home. 
It's more likely that she's going to manage to get by instead of being in Moab. And so Naomi begins to make her way back to Bethlehem. She tells Orpah and Ruth to go back to their parents' house and find new husbands. I I can't take care of you. Go home. You're still young enough. You still have enough life in front of you that you can start a new life for yourself. Return home. Depart from me. I'm going to go back to where I'm from. She can't provide for them, but they're still young enough that they can have a new life with somebody else. So she tells them to leave. Now there's something that came up in the text that needs to be explained. It's this idea of leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. So what is that? When when Naomi says that even if I were to get married and have a son today, you shouldn't wait for him to be old enough to get married You shouldn't wait around for that. She's talking about an incredibly common uh, custom, Jewish custom that they had. In fact, it was actually the expected practice in the world that they lived in. The expected practice. A man would take in the widow of his brother as another wife for himself and provide an heir in his brother's name. Well, that sounds weird. To our sensibilities, it does. But this was the normal way, not only of providing for the widow, but of perpetuating the family line. An incredibly important thing in their culture. So, the widow is provided for, and the family line continues. It's an incredible act of provision. If there was a a third son of Naomi's that was somehow in the story, both Orpah and Ruth would have become second and third wives for him probably. I know that seems weird to the sensibilities of our culture, but, but in a culture where these women probably die in destitution without it, that's a life saving thing we're talking about. It's a blessing. Everyone has hit rock bottom here because there is no third son. There is no one to step in and provide. So Naomi says, hey, 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 we can't do this. Go home. Orpah says, okay, but Ruth refuses to leave Naomi. Ruth rejects her culture, she rejects her God, and instead of Instead, she chooses to cling to Naomi, Naomi's culture, and Naomi's God. Ruth is what we call a God-fearer. All throughout the Bible, a God-fearer is someone who, who is not an Israelite, but they believe the God of the Bible. They trust him. They, they try to do what they say. But here, here's the problem. It was culturally for the Jews. God had one chosen people in the Old Testament. The God-fearer could come along on the fringes and at least reap some of the benefits. Ruth is a God-fearer. So let's keep reading in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Call a little time out here. Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter tell you a little bit about what Naomi's feeling about all this, right? Don't call me my name, just call me the bitter lady. 
Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Hey, y'all remember last week when Job was accusing God of getting everything wrong? How well did that go for him? I remember that. But let's keep reading. Verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Dun, 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 dun. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Uh, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves from the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink uh, what the young men have drawn. Uh, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Verse 11, Boaz said to her, or answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Uh, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also put, on, uh, put out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So Naomi and Ruth, I know there's a lot that we talked about there. Naomi and Ruth make it to Bethlehem and everyone is surprised to see them back. Is that Naomi? I didn't know Naomi was still around. Their story starts getting told everywhere. And like every other small town in every culture across all of human history, the story travels fast. Right? Those of you who were raised in a small town, you know. You know. It doesn't take long until everybody has heard about Naomi and Ruth. They begin to get hungry because, you know, that's like a daily thing. And so Ruth goes out into the field to glean while the crops are being harvested. And gleaning, quote-unquote, is the second long-standing Jewish tradition custom that we see in this story. So what's gleaning? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about Exodus 23, right? They would intentionally leave a part of their field unharvested so that those who had a great need could come behind them not ahead of them. They didn't get first dibs on the field. But they could come behind them, and whatever was left over, they could put in the work to glean, to, to harvest for themselves. That's what gleaning is. It was a way of, of providing food for those who didn't have the means to create that food. 
lo and behold, Ruth ends up in Boaz's field. And Boaz likes what he sees. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> right? That's exact. If you're not reading the story right, that's what happens. Boaz likes what he sees. He immediately notices Ruth. And Boaz begins to lavish her with kindness. Absolutely lavishes her. Let me read something. It says he tells everybody to leave her alone and make sure her job is super easy. Like, let her get right up beside you, but don't get onto her. In fact, in fact, why don't you pull some of the bundles out and just leave them there for her? He tells her not to worry about sticking to the margins of the field, but just jump in there with everybody else and take whatever she wants. He even feeds her from the table that he had prepared for his workers and passes her his roasted grain bowl. Hey girl, how about you try some of my roasted grain? Huh? Boaz is impressed. He likes what he sees. The story keeps going in verse 17. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. It's kind of like a rough way of, of, of processing the grain. It wouldn't have been the normal processing, but it's just like a quick way of, of getting it done. All right, she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So what in the world is an ephah? An ephah is like five and a half gallons of processed grain. That's a lot of grain, especially if you're trying to feed two little old ladies. Right? That's a lot of grain. In fact, that'd be about two and a half-ish weeks worth of grain for them. So we're talking about a lot of food here. And this is only the first day of the harvest. She's going to end up coming home with a lot more. So this isn't just about subsisting on whatever they can find food-wise. No, no, no. Ruth is bringing home enough to make a profit on this. To provide for the family. She gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley, verse 18. And then she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And, what, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the, na- uh, the, man, excuse me, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Verse 20. And Naomi said to her, her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest, you, lest in another field you be assaulted. And she kept close to the young woman uh, of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest and she lived with her mother-in-law so Ruth tells Naomi everything that's happened and Naomi calls Boaz excitedly explains Boaz as what's known as a redeemer a redeemer and some of you uh, may have hear that sometimes called a kinsman redeemer problem with that is that kinsman and redeemer are redundant things you can't have a redeemer without him being kinsman so that's only a little pet peeve of mine but don't worry about it Maybe. All right. So she calls him a redeemer. A redeemer. And here we see yet another 
long-standing Jewish custom. Set aside to care for those who are in need. If you're keeping score at home, that makes three in this story. Just like with leveret marriage, the job of a redeemer was to take care of the family after death. In, in this case, specifically, specifically by purchasing the property of the deceased so that it wouldn't have to be sold to someone outside the family. They would step in and purchase. And so the property that they fled from at the beginning of the story, that still technically belongs to Elimelech, right? But Naomi can't really do anything with it. She doesn't have the rights to sell it in that culture. She needs somebody to step in, but a redeemer can step in. They can buy it so that it stays in the family, and it would likely, in all likelihood, be given back to somebody as an heir of that family sometime down the road, either given back outright or sold for cheap. And so the property would stay in the family. And Boaz is related to Elimelech, and therefore he is entitled to act as that redeemer. Boaz gets to be the guy that steps in. And so we're halfway through the story now, and everything looks like it's going to be tied up in a nice, pretty little bow, right? It's like a stinking Hallmark movie. (laughs) But we've also spent a whole lot of time now talking about how Ruth and Boaz are raised up, and we've got three other questions to answer today, don't we? So what's question number two? What made her a seemingly bad choice? And I say her here on purpose because we need to focus for a moment specifically on Ruth. Specifically on Ruth. So what makes Ruth a seemingly bad choice to be a part of God's great redemption story? Because Ruth is a Moabite and Moabites are horrible. Horrible. Do you know the origin story of the Moabites? Do you know that one? Parents, cover little ears if you need to. The beginning of the Moabites starts in Genesis chapter 19. Abraham's nephew, Lot, that guy, is fleeing with his daughters from the destruction of Sodom. Their husbands have just been killed in this destruction, and they're worried that they're not going to find new husbands and have kids again. And so they devise a plan to each get their father, Lot, drunk and sleep with him so that they can have offspring. It's an incredibly tragic story. The son of the eldest daughter is named Moab. The son of the eldest daughter is named Moab. His kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids, his family line becomes the Moabite people. Literally the worst start of a nation of people I can think of. But it's not just their origin story. The Moabites actually earn their bad reputation all on their own. All right? They actually earn their, their reputation. Um, the Moabites regularly practice child sacrifice to the gods, false gods Molech and Chemosh. Super classy people. Super classy people. And then on top of all that, well, they were constantly at war with the Israelites. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, the judge Ehud happens during that time. The Moabites are who they're fighting against. This is a fresh story in the minds of the people that Ruth is playing out in. Remember, it's during the time of the Judges. That is a, that's not just a fresh wound. That's an open sore in the time of Ruth. The Moabites to them were the child-sacrificing 
warmongers who have enslaved us and, and made us follow false gods who, oh yeah, got their start in Genesis 19. Is there anything positive about the Moabites to the Israelite people? Not a bit. Not one bit. The idea that a Moabite would play a positive character in God's story is downright laughable to a Jewish audience. The idea that Boaz would not just be kind to Ruth, but actually give her affections and pursue her in relationship, that's going to start a fight to this audience. How dare you suggest such a thing? So all throughout this series, we've seen that God needs to redeem our characters. And this week, it may not seem that way on the surface, but I promise you this week, it is more needed than many of the other weeks that we've looked at. For the Jewish audience, the wicked Moabites are not ones who deserve to be saved. They're ones who deserve to have God's wrath bestowed on them. And I know that probably rubs up against what many of you think of when you look at Ruth. I mean, look at her. She's so kind and humble. She's so hardworking and loyal. She is all those things. I'm not taking that away from her. But it's possible to be all those things and still have a really shady history you wish didn't come up in public. It's possible to have all kinds of virtuous character on your record and still wish you could hide a lot of the junk in the past. Anybody else? To read the story of Ruth correctly is to understand that Ruth has zero business. Zero business being a celebrated part of God's covenant people. Absolutely none. But that's also something we keep hearing throughout this series, right? Because that's precisely the type of folks that God keeps folding into his story. And so then, how in the world does God redeem her? Verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were, uh, with with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Verse 5. And she replied, all that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, "Who who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may, be, uh, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I, do, I, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, and know, and, excuse me, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. 
Remain tonight, and in the morning he will redeem you. Good, let, and if he will redeem you, good, let him. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Verse 14. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before she could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring, your gar- or bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back into handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest but settle the matter today so naomi has ruth get all dolled up and she sends her to see boaz that's what happens she takes a nice bath she puts on a special garment she's given instructions to sneak onto the threshing floor in the cover of dark and uncover what our translation of the bible says quote uncover his feet and lay down and wait so what do we do with that Some commentators, in fact, a lot of commentators, have pointed out that the phrase uncover his feet can literally be translated euphemistically. And so it's possible, highly possible even, it is a strong argument to say that there's something sexual going on here. The only problem with that is that it completely ignores what the writer seems to have done up to this point in the story to celebrate and shout to the mountaintops just how noble the character of Ruth and Boaz are. And so while you could technically make that argument, I don't think it's the best one. Somebody's phone is reading to him. <laughs> hey, it's Roger. All right, All right so... If it's, not, if it's not meant euphemistically, what is meant by it? Well, Ruth has spent all this time since the death of her husband up till now in mourning. And I don't mean emotionally. I mean culturally and publicly in mourning. She would have shown that mourning by wearing a certain type of garment and not anointing her head with oil and probably painting ashes on her head in some way. She's been... Probably every moment from that time of her husband's death till now in public mourning for the death of her husband. So what does the action of bathing and anointing your head with oil and changing your garment signify to the culture? The mourning is now over. Signifies that Ruth is actually ready to move on with her life and possibly even marry again. So Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor and gives her very specific instructions to secretly uncover Boaz's feet. And and this is a place where it would have been very, very possible to have a prostitute show up. And so the act of going so far but showing restraint and not going any further, I would make the argument that it actually shows more than anything else proof of Ruth and Boaz's character in this moment. I think it's about showing intent to pursue relationship without crossing that extra step into something else. Because Ruth could have entrapped him here. She could have entrapped him here. And instead, there's restraint and there's honor. We could talk about that for a while, but we've got to move on. What it all boils down to is that Ruth is told what to do. She does everything she's told, and it works. It works. 
Boaz would like to pursue her in marriage. But there's also a new problem, right? What's the new problem? Turns out that there's a redeemer who has a closer right than Boaz does. And here, the story of Ruth and Boaz is yet again exactly like a Hallmark movie. Exactly like a Hallmark movie. What we have here, folks, is what people in the Christmas movie industry call the third act complication. Right? You know how the story plays out. Relationships moving along fine. It looks like they're all going to come together. And then the weird, super rich, but kind of a jerk boyfriend finally makes it to town. Have you seen this movie? You've seen this movie. Or she's spying on the guy. And she sees him hugging his sister, but she doesn't know that he has a sister. And so she thinks it's something else. I've seen that movie probably 13 times. They all have different names, but I've seen it. We have a problem. We have fallen off the mountaintop, right? There is a redeemer who is closer than Boaz. Boaz wants to pursue her, but this other jerk is standing in the way. How dare they? Boaz swears that he will redeem her if the other guy refuses. And so Ruth goes home and Boaz goes to work. Look at chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. Okay, call time out. You know how else I can prove to you this is exactly like a Hallmark movie? Because you don't know anything else about this other guy and you already hate him. (laughs) Right? This guy could be the most down-to-earth, cool, well-off, like love Ruth for the rest of her days, classy act. But you don't care. You want him to fail because you're rooting for Boaz. Am I wrong? Call me a liar. Boaz gathers the guys. He, he begins putting this stuff together. He, he calls them to sit down. Verse 2, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. And he, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the city, uh, for the country of Moab, excuse me, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to, her, uh, to our relative Elimelech. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, uh, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times of Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Verse 8, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders uh, of the, all the people, you are witnesses this day that I, brought, uh, that I bought excuse me, from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malan and Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have bought to be a, uh, my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
All right, so Boaz gathers the elders and begins the official process. Again, another Jewish custom, right? So that's four now, all right? Another, begins the official process of redeeming Elimelech's property. And like he expected, the other redeemer wants in. He wants the land. But as soon as Boaz tacks on, Ruth and Naomi and their care, the other guy bows out, right? Because he believes that it will mess up his own inheritance. The other guy understands that producing an heir in the line of Elimelech and Malan will affect what he's able to pass down to his own kids. And that's a factual thing. It's going to affect it. You got three kids and you adopt the fourth one, guess what's happening to everybody's share of the inheritance? It's going to affect things. And so while he has the means to provide, he doesn't have the resolve. He doesn't have the resolve to do so. Well, he has the rights and the financial ability to provide for the Moabite Ruth. He doesn't have the desire. And that brings up our fourth question for the morning. How is the gospel proclaimed the story of Ruth and Boaz? Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And, when, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nation, uh, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So if you haven't put the pieces together yet, Obed is King David's grandfather. Obed is King David's grandfather, which makes Ruth and Boaz King David's great-grandparents. Jesus is from the family line of King David, right? So that means that Ruth the Moabite is in the family line of Jesus. And if you were to turn to the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1, you would see Ruth's name there. Ruth the Moabite is in the family line of Jesus. Is that allowed? Like, if you, like you think you've got some folks in your family tree you'd rather not bring up publicly? <laughs> i got more than a handful. Ruth the Moabite from Moab is in the family line of Jesus. And there are at least a couple of things that ought to be drawn out about that. Number one, God keeps using the last person you would expect. This is like the thousandth time he's done this, right? I know that's an exaggeration, but it's not much of one. Over and over again, he powerfully uses the one that the world would go, why them? What are you doing? There's better options over here. Over and over again, we maybe, just maybe, ought to assume he's doing it on purpose. You think? Have we gotten to that point yet? But secondly, we also keep getting these little glimpses that God is doing something way bigger than just redeeming the Jews here, isn't he? 
He keeps folding non-Jews into this very Jewish story for some reason. Why would that be? It's because he is redeeming and reconciling folks from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And what began with the Jews, oh, I promise you, church, does not end there. He's hinting at it all the way back in the time of the judges. He's, he's painting a picture of what's to come. Yeah, yeah, he's doing something special through this covenant family, through this one nation, but he is flowering out of that into something much, much bigger than that. That's only the first way that Ruth and Boaz's story preaches the gospel. Another way, and we've already hinted at it, is that Boaz serves as a shadow of a redeemer to come. A redeemer to come. In every Redeemer situation, two things are necessary. Means and resolve. Means and resolve. The means to purchase and the resolve to purchase that thing for the benefit of someone else instead of yourself. That's what's happening in a Redeemer situation. You're not buying that land for yourself. You're buying it to give it back one day. You're buying it so it stays in the family and so it carries on the name of the person who died. That's what a Redeemer's doing. He's not just picking up some land that'll be nice. He's re- he is purchasing for the benefit of others. The Redeemer steps in to perpetuate his family member's name, not his own. That's why the other guy in our story bowed out. He liked the idea of picking up some land for himself, but as soon as he was responsible for Ruth and Naomi and their potential kids, it became a problem for him. The first guy had the means, but he didn't have the resolve. Boaz had the resolve. He saw his means as an opportunity to redeem Ruth and Naomi, and so he knowingly and willingly stepped in to save them. Ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly how Jesus views his opportunity. Exactly how Jesus views his opportunity. Jesus doesn't simply just have the means. I mean, he has that in spades. But he also has the resolve to redeem and to save. He also has the resolve. Jesus steps in to, to pay the debt that you and I owe, but he doesn't do so begrudgingly. And he doesn't do so with an eye towards what it might cost him in his inheritance. No, he lays himself bare for the benefit of another. That's what Jesus is doing. He empties himself for the benefit of us and for the glory and the fame of his Father. He redeems us. And so while I think Ruth is a really classy lady, and while she totally deserves to have a, Bible, a book of the Bible named after her, Boaz is the one that keeps acting like Jesus. Ruth is great, but ultimately, we need to focus on Boaz in this story. Which means that we put in the work and we can finally answer our big question for the morning. There's one overarching theme to the series. God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Ruth and Boaz to be a shadow of a much more perfect Ruth and Boaz to come in Jesus. God raised up the worthy, an unworthy outsider. An outsider stained by death and stained by sin. He raised up a righteous redeemer to step in and rescue, to step in and restore, to step in and cleanse and provide. He did it all in a know-nothing backwater town called Bethlehem. Quietly working behind the scenes, 
while the rest of the nation raged with what they thought was the much bigger problem. He's bringing peace. Starting to catch the drift here. This is the story of God. The story of God is no small deal. It's the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of creation to the very end of this world. What's he doing? He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason. That his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. You do that, firstly, by pressing into his word. I would tell you to go read the book of Ruth, but we just read the whole thing. (laughs) You're welcome. Go read it again. This time with an eye towards who he's telling you he is. He's given it to us for the purpose of showing himself off. Feast on him there. But we can take another step into this. Maybe Ruth and Boaz's story sounds eerily like yours sometimes. Hear me, God's plan for Ruth didn't just stop at redeeming her. He he certainly did that. He certainly did that. But he turned her into a cherished woman whom, quote, was more valuable than seven sons. If God desires to do that to the dirty Moabite girl, how about we just go ahead and trust what he's promised to provide for you? Right? If he's willing to do that for somebody with the history of Ruth, somebody as broken and, and in need of redemption as Ruth, you think you can trust what he says and promises for you? Like, is it, like is it somehow harder for him? Not even close. Don't doubt him. To ignore what he says about you in light of how he's doing it over and over and over and over again, not only with you, but with all these other stories that we're looking at, well, that's not humility. That's not humility. That's that's actually sin. I, I know what you said, but. I just can't trust you. Today's a good day to repent of sin. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, we'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well today. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you, hang, you chose to hang out with us today. Keep hanging out. Keep asking questions. I, I hope we can try to give you some good answers. We work on that. You can respond to God's word this morning too. And you do that by meeting the one that this story is all about. By trusting Jesus in his work on your behalf on the cross to pay the debt of your sin. Today's a good day to lean in the one, into the one who's the greatest redeemer ever. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You come talk to me if that would serve you well today. I'd love to walk you through what it looks like to trust Jesus wholly and fully. Let's pray. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being a God who redeems the world, the ones that the world would call unredeemable who loves and provides for and serves and gives yourself fully the ones who have no business knowing you you are far better to us than what we deserve 
I deserve nothing. But yet you are good. God, would you help us lean into your presence today? Would you show us your goodness? Would you show us your bigness? Would you show us how much you provide? God, for those in here who don't know you, would you draw us to yourself today? Would you reveal yourself in such a way that we have to do something about it? You are the great redeemer. You are mighty to save. God, as we respond this morning, would you, would you work in us and through us? Would you change us? May you do something special in this time. God, in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand.